This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior uh, U.S. intelligence officers. And today we have another outstanding guest. He is a former chief of CIA's uh, ta Afghan Task Force, a former chief of CIA's Latin America Division, also Counter-Narcotics Center. And before his retirement, he was the ADDO, the Associate Deputy Director of Operations for CIA. He's now a member of the Council of Foreign Relations and a co-founder and president of the Arkin Group based in New York City. Please welcome Jack Devine. Jack, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you, Jim, for inviting me. It's a great group and I'm glad to be able to talk. We're here today to talk about Jack's second book. Yeah, he actually presented um, his first book, Good Hunting, at a AFIO lunch several years ago. Jack, your new book, uh, Spymaster's Prism, um, is quite different. Tell us uh, what the differences are with the first book. Well, as you remember, Jim, the first one was more about the covert action side of the business. And as you know, it touched me in many different places, Chile, Iran-Contra, Afghanistan, uh, Escobar. All those things were action things. And they eventually became public. And I had... Uh, strong views about when you use it and what are the conditions. And I started to write to that theme. This book is more focused on one of our single threats. And I know we're going to tease it out as we go along. That's Russia. And my belief that they never really slowed down, uh, except for a very brief period in 91. Even then, they were handling Hansen. So I wanted to address the fact that even though the communist government collapsed, Russia retains a very strong intelligence focus and an, are their number one priority is working against us and more recently the United States. So what I do is I go back in history, bouncing back and forth between the early days of uh, espionage between the Russians and Cold War and then bring it frankly up into uh, yesterday, if you will, including their involvement in the election and more recently the hack. I was able to uh, well, in the book, I do address uh, the issue of Russia hacking into our system and what that means for us and what it means in the going forward for the intelligence community. So that's the difference. One book is covert action and the other one is uh, more espionage oriented, but with the new tools of our time and the political overlay that it has embedded in it. Jack, um, as you well know, there's a lot of work involved in putting together one of these books, both researching and writing. Um, what are the lessons you've learned and was it worth it? <laughs> well, it, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> a very good question. I, I asked myself that several times. Uh, I always under, first of all, like first book, I grossly underestimated the time it takes to get a book into print and even to get the book right. Now, I'm not James Patterson. I knock out a book every week and everyone sits around waiting to read it. But uh, what I did learn in the process, just from those that are thinking about the technical process, is, you know, you get you get the story down and, you know, you have a theme. And eventually what you have to do is go from the chronology to a thematic book and, and in order for it to not read just like a plain old history book or one of our reports. So that was a lesson on, on that level. On the bigger side of it. Um, the publishing business, I hope no one's listening from that area, moves at its own pace. They don't care what's going on in the world with maybe a few exceptions. You know, they want to get Bolton's book out in the hurry or whatever. But a hurry for them is a year. So when I finished the book, it was a year between uh, 
their process of getting the book in catalogs and getting a cover on it, indexing. So, you know, if someone's counting on getting their story out to Harry, you better have a damn good story. The second thing is, you know, the, the publishers always get, what about the nuggets? And they always throw out Hillary throwing a frying pan at Bill Clinton. That's what sold the book. And I, thought, well, I can tell you stories of our people throwing things at each other, but I, I don't think they're going to be considered nuggets. So, there's a temp- there's pressure on that, and I really resist it. I mean, I do think this the new book, like Covert Action, I'm a frustrated teacher. I taught school for four or five years at high school, and I still have embedded me. Uh, the primary uh, DNA is CIA, but the second one is the, the role of education and bringing people uh bringing people to understand our business better and even some of our practitioners and the young people joining. So part of it's rooted in in that. There are some personal things that I got out of it that I certainly wasn't intending. I mean, don't, don't write if you're going to make a living unless you're super gifted, (laughs) but, um, and then it takes, I said, a lot of labor. If someone tells you they knocked it out in a weekend, I mean, good luck. Um, But, what I did learn, a couple of things, uh, as life goes by, you realize there's a lot of people out there who were never near Afghanistan in their life. <laughs> they're sitting in some office or decided they're going to write a book about what happened in Afghanistan, right, or what happened in Chile. So at a certain point, I really felt, look, you know, I think I want to put my own story out there. And I, you know, I'm, right now, there's not a lot of us left from Chile. So anytime the Chile coup and the Allende I invariably get called and I'm counterpointed with someone who worked in the archives or something else. And I had the big advantage of being on the ground and putting into context what, how we really do do business. So telling your own story was not trivial, but I wasn't didn't go in for that reason, but coming back. So there's a lot of psychological satisfaction. Also on the home front, you know, my wife and children knew some of what I did, but the book allows you to put your life in context, your intelligence life in context. And when I got back, I thought, well, that was a pretty interesting life. The agency treated you pretty well. You're lucky you got in the door for one. But um, the fact that your the friends and family have some sense of, of who you are was an unexpected um, benefit. So, yeah, it was a lot of work, but it's a hobby. That, that's not the right word. It's uh, it's a secondary. It's it's much more int- important to me than a hobby. But I have a full time job, and I mean, truly full time job still. People say, "Well, how long have you been retired?" I said, "We mean from the agency. I'm still working." I was up at no. Sorry, no sorry. So we won't do that. But my point, uh, my my point is, it's uh, it, there's a lot of in, in, in the writing of a book that you don't anticipate. It was something I was very glad to do, and that's why I started on the second book, and it took me twice as long. And another tip I would say, I started out, I was going to write a, call, a little book on our, four, our earlier leaders, right? And then next thing you know, it gets complicated and all the other threats. And eventually then you had the Trump election with the Russians running around intervening. And so the book kept changing and eventually it became focused on Russian, Russian aggression, intelligence aggression. But it wasn't like I woke up one night and said, I'm going to write a book about that. So... There's other people that approach these things much better. I now have, and I said, I have the experience of going through it. And I, the other thing that I will give very important advice, and this is a, a case in Spy Master's Prison, it's easy to write about a single event and a single person, right? And if you look at the bestsellers, it's who killed Geronimo, right? Or it's focused on one person or one event. 
when you try to blend what I would call informative education about how things work and you go across a broad spectrum of activities, it's it's a it's a market that's harder to to land in because you know a lot of people buy a book to go to the beach or because they're politically oriented about somebody. But to sit down and say, look, I want to read a book about Russia intelligence, what it really means and how the CIA dealt with it. Uh, I hope people read it on the beach, but I don't think I take it to the beach. <laughs> I take Jim Patterson, I guess. So I hope that's helpful for the many people that have been in our business. I, I never dreamed I'd write a book. I and I really I would have signed never write a book if they did it. But I got mightily annoyed when some people, including some from our own organization, started to write books about things they weren't even involved in. So, and I backed into it. Um, I can tell you one story, Jim. I don't know if we cut this part, but so when I left, I, you know, I was uh, the cover was lifted. But when I went to New York, I didn't tell people I worked at CIA. I always answered, yeah, I worked at U.S. government, right? So that's their assumption. I worked at the post office, but we finally got to this dentist, and he's about to drill in my mouth, and he said, "Well." What did you do? And I said, well, I worked at U.S. government. He said, no, what did you really do? So I said, okay, Stan, I, I worked at CIA. And he breaks out lives. That's what I tell everybody, because if I tell them I'm a dentist, they'll want to start telling me about their dental problems and so on. I walked out there, look, if Stan's going around telling people he's a CIA agent, maybe it's time for me to loosen up a little. And then the chili, there was a chili story, and this is what really drugged me into the public. I have strong feelings about that event and its role in our history and in the history of this country. And Washington Post was going to do a story and public affairs called me and said, uh, Jack, they're going to do a big story. We'd like to find somebody that knows something about it. We're not asking you to do anything, but if you're comfortable, we'll tell them to call you. And so it ended up being, a, for its day, a fairly major story about the other side of the the overthrow and put in the context of somebody who's there. After that, it became easier for me to talk in public and, and so on. And we all know what the sources of methods are. But my life has been such that so many things I touch became public or close to it that it's it's easier to write a book and it's easier to go through the PR B process once you know what the ground rules are. Jack, as you alluded earlier, um, Spy Master's Prism in its essence is really about the long struggle between U.S. and Russian intelligence. What are the major differences between those two intelligence agencies? Well, Jim, I know it's a, a question you know the answer to, and I, I think I don't think I ever met anybody in CIA uh, that didn't join the agency for a sense of mission that's tied to our values: freedom, democracy, defending our our flag and country, what it stands for. Um, I think when I looked at the service, the Russian service. Certainly at the beginning, they were communists and were advocates in that area. But by the time you got into service, a lot of that fervor was gone. And certainly by the, the 70s and 80s, the Russian service really wasn't peddling communism. They were part of a system. They were the elite within that system. So I think when I think back about our operations abroad, it was hard. There's nobody in the room that doesn't know how hard it can it can be and the sacrifice people suffered. But we had a, a, two really important things going for us uh, that they had, they didn't. That was, we were light at the top of the hill. In other words, people around the world wanted to work with us, including our, you know, people that worked for adversary government, wanted, wanted to be on our team. I found communism a hard thing to sell after the, for them to sell after the 70s. 
The other thing, and a lot of our officers, even in the 80s, were divided on, you know, we don't really need liaison. We could, you may remember that moment in time when it became fashionable talk. Well, let's go out to West Virginia and all the deal. We'll go out there with a few analysts and, you know, do you know how to lots. Well, they had no appreciation of how the place really works. The role of liaison, and particularly in modern age, when we are in these transnational countries that require, you just can't do a lot of these operations without liaison. So when you compared the Russians, we had tremendous liaison. There was no place around, the, the, most of the world was free, but even places that were neutral, you know, cooperated more with the United States and we had a force multiplier. They were in a more hostile world. We were in a hostile world on their turf and the rest of the world, we had great allies and we were a force multiplier. And it's one of the things that those who would like to kill the CIA and destroy it and weaken its strength, I mean, what they would like to do is get us out of the liaison business, right? Because of the ability to not only uh, protect ourselves from intelligence points of view, but we can work with foreign governments to extend the interest of the United States and its foreign policy. Jack, how are Russian intelligence operations today um, different than when we served? Well, I think there's a, many things that are similar, right? You, at the end of the day, you have to be our cornerstone. Is, uh, frankly, when you walk in the building, it gives you the cornerstone, you know, the truth and set it free. We have to have nonpartisan, non-politicized intelligence. So back in the Cold War, that way we had to produce intelligence reports. One way to short circuit your career at the agency was to produce, deliberately produce information that was wrong and bad and filled it. And it was a culture, and I think just about everybody grew up with. I had a hint of maybe some were more liberal, more conservative. But we, my generation, I believe you're right there with me, not far behind. You know, partisan uh, partisan politics was not part of the the deal. You know, recruiting sources, high end analysis. Pressing technology, all these things are pretty much the same. Human behavior has not changed radically. For me, the, the major difference today is the world of technology. And the way we do business today, you know, I joined not too long after they got one rid of one-time pads. There's very few people in the audience that know one-time pad is. I never use one. They just got rid of it. But... You know, around around the world, when I was in Chile, for example, there was no CNN. There was no news. There was nothing that was competing with the. So there was a rich demand on the agency and other intelligence collectors to produce political, economic, social information. And what we have today is you and I sitting here at a desk, and that's how. You know, I, I spend, you know, part of my day is you can gather information just about on any subject uh, around the world. It has an offense and defensive side to it. Uh, in the intelligence business, we can find a great deal out about people that we would never dream we would be able to do. We can engage them. They don't even know we're engaging them. You know, in our covert action, I remember we made signs for, you know, for the Russians to get out of Afghanistan on a stick, right? I mean, today... One of these lovely iPhones, you know, I can probably mobilize, you know, 20,000 people to show up anywhere. You know, so the power of technology today, I think we're having a real difficulty in under, not understanding, being able to cope with how uh, powerful it is for adversaries and how much damage they can do in the intelligence world inside of our system. And how trouble can be created around the world in the covert action area because of the state of technology. 
So I think we lived in the pre-industrial revolution, Jim, when you and I were in the intelligence. Today, it's a, a new ballgame. The basics are the same. We want to know what the key policymakers and our adversaries are doing. We want to be able to track people that are hostile to our interests. None of that has changed. But the way we do it is night and day. Jack, how large a role does uh, Putin play in Russian intelligence today? And what's his motivation and strategy? Well, I use a, a chapter, I call it the, uh, the spy master president, right? So I, I quote him. And what he said is, uh, there is no such thing as a former KGB officer. Right? <laughs> you know, the truth is, and no one will, maybe our friends won't admit it, Jim, but there's no such thing as a former CIA officer either. In other words, your DNA was manipulated when you signed up and went to the farm. They manipulated your DNA, so it's always part of you. I'm kidding, but what I really mean is the mindset, how you look at the world, how you use power, and, and again, covert action, under what conditions to use it. This formation is really quite interesting. And, you know, a 17-year-old boy wanted to join the KGB, and they didn't take them. Um, and later, you know, it was uh, quite competent in his own right and uh, got into the KGB. But people don't focus on, which I find fascinating, that he wasn't in Paris and he wasn't in uh, Mexico City or Tokyo with all the other KGB guys, you know, fine wine and dining and being in the West. He was in Dresden, East Germany, right? And there was a, there was a, a world, an environment in which he lived in. It's concurrent with uh, Marcus Wolf, you know, Carla of Le Carre's fame, sort of the uh, ubiquitous uh, East German spy who deeply penetrated and you know, had Romeos and Casanova. I mean, incredibly hard-edged intelligence. And he was there when the Soviet Union fell. And by his own words, it was the devastating moment in his life. And he's determined never to have that happen again. So he went off to St. Petersburg, got involved in politics, you know, ended up uh, actually his Russian seniors thought he was, a, you know, a good company guy and easily to manipulate. Well, they had the manipulating on the wrong end of the stick. So he prospered in the system, and then he became head of the FSB, and that is a mindset and a way of doing business, and it's pretty hard-edged. It's many ways because it's internal inside of that former Soviet Union, hard-edged internal um, muscle is used in the business. So some of his behavior today is probably uh, probably uh, you know, rooted in that. So when he became president, I think he's sitting there with restoring you know, the Soviet Union without communism. In other words, he's not a communist, but he, he wants that. He has, I think he's a very good tactician. I think he executes the old Soviet strategy, Cold War strategy, weaken the neighboring countries, you know, against the United States. So, I mean, I think, you know, it was, it was effective in Syria and Ukraine. I mean, he's a very tactical guy. I think his strategy is all wrong, which is from where I sit, I think, Russia really belongs in the West, you know, without communism. And I'm really not sure why there needs to be friction between the United States and the Russians, other than this mindset. And there's a bit of low grade paranoia. Maybe it's not, maybe there's some merit in it. And that is, you know, he looks at the West as hostile and NATO, and it's really old think. And I think that's where he's off to. I think he's a lousy strategic thinker and an amazingly effective tactical guy. Now, he has some real issues at home today, which I'm sure we'll touch on at some point. 
And it is a combination of strategic thinking and, and tactical thinking and how he's going forward. But you don't get Putin unless you get the fact that he works from an intelligence mindset and the, dev the tremendous impact of the collapse of the Soviet Union had on the intelligence service and his sense of Russia. And so um, I think he is formidable. And the fact that he was so young when he rose to the system, it was a big mistake to underestimate the cell's cunning. Jack, what's Putin's uh, game in uh, Ukraine? And weren't you in Kiev in 2018? Well, that's a good story. I'm glad you touched on that one. So, you know, if you look at Russia, and I think their DMP probably around Spain or Italy, right? Uh, you know, they're, they really couldn't, if you took nuclear weapons away, which is not a little if, that keeps them, they have to be considered one of our main countries we have to keep a focus on because of that alone. You know, it's, it's GDP, it's the variety of its uh, products and production, the, the, work level skills in terms of the, many of the high tech things that we're involved in. It's really a, a second tier country in that regard. What made it different over the years is Russia with Ukraine is quite different than Russia without it. You had the Ukraine, you had a lot of industrial power, breadbasket. So Ukraine is like saying, look, we're gonna do without California, right? Or but a lot of people might say we might do well without California or whatever, but I mean, for, for Russia without Ukraine, it's a big deal. And it's strategically important. Like I go back to the Cold War thinking of the Crimea and the Black, Black Sea and access to port. I mean, these, these things are ingrained in them. So when he saw an opportunity, or more importantly, when he thought it was threatened, that the West was going to have Ukraine and it would be in the West and it would be, um, you know, in NATO, he took an extraordinary bold thing and, you know, developed basically a, a covert invasion. Covert is not the right word, plausible, I mean, implausible denial. But, I mean, he had his green men on the ground. So Ukraine, he's going to hold on. He's got his heels dug in. So the Ukraine story is really quite interesting. Uh, the book was published, Good Hunting was published in Estonia, China, Romania and Ukraine. The reason it was published there, someone wanted to publish it. We can reflect on China, it's quite interesting, but it's because they're threatened by Russia. So they picked up the book and they published it. And I was invited out and I hadn't been to Ukraine because when I was in, that was not friendly uh, territory. So I went to Kiev and you know, the the publisher and basically set up a lot of interviews because I was collecting material about the new book. And I, I thought, well, I'm out here on a publishing, I'm going to meet with people. So everywhere I went, I said, I'm just publishing a book. I am not involved in the agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it was like, oh, God, I can't convince these people that, you know, you're not under we're the government. So I met, uh, you know, the chief of staff and uh, NSC, the committees, and it was a little fascinating. And then I met the patriarch, and uh, I went there. We had cookies and coffee in the morning. That was quite a quite an event. Um, and uh, the Orthodox Church is tremendously powerful for those that don't understand Ukraine. It's very powerful in its interactions with the Russian. So the next day, a new story breaks. Jack Devine. Two, 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 two news stories broke at the same time simultaneously. One said, Jack Devine came out here to uh, support the Orthodox Church in its fight with Russia, right? So the Orthodox, I think they leaked it so that I, the CIA would be supporting them. And then 
the Russians put out, Jack Devine came out to split, split the church against us because they wanted to tarnish the Orthodox church by uh, by putting CIA in the middle of it. And they were in the middle of this. Uh, both of them wasn't true. Both of them published it ad nauseum. And I, you know, I notified some of our old friends and they laughed. They said, that's really funny. But the fact that if you want to talk about fake news, that I personally split the Orthodox Church, I mean, that that would be the proudest moment of my life that I could pull off with such an operation, right? But in any case, uh, it is, I, I think Putin was pushing hard uh, on the Ukraine. I, I, I really think our response should have been stronger, covertly stronger. And uh I think now his plan, very frankly, is he's going to hold on to what he has and he will use traditional intelligence, covert action to undermine the Western part and to weaken it so that it becomes, you know, he doesn't have to invade if he can weaken it, make it soft on on his agenda. So I, I promise you he is extremely active in his intelligence officers working that problem. Jack, uh, coming uh, closer to home. In your view, what were the Russians up to uh, during the 2016 U.S. election? Well, I go in, I go to in the book, uh, and I will start at the beginning. I was a little bit, I was thrown off balance because I thought, this doesn't make sense. What are they doing? I mean, what's, what you know, because I do have, I said, respect for Putin's tactical capabilities. It didn't make a lot of sense to me uh, that they would go in and go into our system. And then the more it became obvious that they did, and the two things, you see that they hacked into the system, but you also see through the, the report that was written about it, uh, the special investigation by Mueller, is um, they were running around trying to recruit people like Carter Page and others, and they're running around frantically. And I think they're running around because they didn't have any access to Trump. He wasn't part of the establishment. So the people coming inside of that realm they didn't have relationships with, I mean, in a meaningful way as an intelligence. So they were running, trying doubly fast to get uh, get access to people. And I think they stumbled all over themselves on that. But the second thing, which, and I don't think enough attention is being given to it all, there's two sets of, Mars of Moscow rules. One that goes out there says, you know, don't wear a red shirt with the United States flag on it or you, when you're on a clandestine op, right? How to behave in an operational environment in Russia. But there's another set of rules that predate that that go back to the early early days in the agency, and that is there was an understanding. You know, I don't think you're going to find it in a document. You know, the Magna Charta Charter. But we weren't going to do certain things operationally towards the Russians, and they weren't going to do them to us. We never counterfeited their money. They never counterfeited ours. Why? Because we would destroy the financial assistance. There were a few rough ups along the way, but we did not take any physical action against you know our counterparts. And to the best of my knowledge, with a couple exceptions, uh, didn't happen uh, go any other way. We also did not meddle in the internal political affairs. We fought Russia outside of Russia, other than the early days of uh, communism. I mean, we weren't in there running political movements inside of Russia. And I have a vignette about Afghanistan. When we get to it, you know, these stingers went in during my time. And people didn't want to put them in because they were afraid the Russians were going to react and do something. And they didn't because they 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 saw that in a measured way and it wasn't interfering with their political. It was a serious setback for them. Tremendous setback may have changed the course of the war. But we got a, a, a demarche because a truckload 
of uh, Afghanis drove into Uzbekistan with hundreds of uh, uh, copies of the Quran. They went crazy because they thought we were going internally into the Soviet Union to start politicizing the Muslim world, which we never did. So they were more concerned about the violation of the Moscow rules in the sense of how much do you play around in the other person's domestic affairs. It gets it gets pretty nasty if it's tit for tat and we're in each other's uh, home territory. So that is why the 2016 intervention is really amazingly off-putting to me because it's a violation of it. They are now meddling in our internal political affairs. And whether you're looking at the, the nature of the hacks, the um, uh, sensitizing political forces in this country, they are playing on our home turf. And I, as far as I can tell, uh, it's not clear to me what our response has been or will be to that. And I mean, I think we need to have some Rosa discussions with them about, you know, what are the new ground rules in the cyber age? Because we're going to eat each other up if we start meddling in each other's internal affairs. I mean, there's obviously opportunities today to make life miserable for Putin. I, I encourage both sides to pull back. But I think it was missed. It was as if the hacking of the DNC was a big deal. I mean, I understand. Let me take that back and rephrase it. But, you know, it was it was a big deal politically and in terms of our system. But it's a major operation. It was like, you know, small fry. Uh, you know, what were they going to get out of it? I mean, it was really not, uh, for me, from where I said, not a brilliant operation. Jack, in that same vein, what do you think about the accusations that former President Trump was under the influence of the Russians? And do you foresee any policy changes under the new Biden administration towards Putin or Russia? Well, the two very good questions. Uh, the, the first one's very popular, by the way. <laughs> There's probably 80 million people in this country that believe that, right? So uh, I, I would just say to you as professional and other professionals listening in, were we ever so good that we recruited the head of state? <laughs> were the Russians ever so good that they, you know, it's, it's sort of you're afraid to do it. Even Marcus Wolf, I mentioned earlier, had in late in life had second thoughts about recruiting the chancellor around uh, Willie Brandt because it, it turned the entire West German system against them. And he thought they paid a, a huge, um, a huge political price. So my first thing is when I sit back and look at the, uh, the statistical charts of how often that's been done, it, it would make me uh, agnostic at the beginning. The second thing is Trump's response on Ukraine, just going with that, was much more forceful because there, was, there wasn't lethal aid and, and, and with Trump there was. What is confounding for me with uh, Trump is you know, why did he say publicly these things that were, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to find a nice word, but Helsinki, it was, it was just for me, it was such a disappointing performance because you know, on one hand, he's saying, look, I believe this guy. The other side, he's behaving in ways that were stronger, were sanctions and so on. And as I analyze it, I just think he was the type of person that could not accept the fact, you know, he, he just was afraid that the whole world thought he won, uh, was, uh, won the election by the Russians helping him. And he was just going to constantly go back on that point, ignoring the bigger geopolitical thing, because he just didn't want uh, people to think that he was uh, elected by it. I mean, I, I, there's a book out now by a fellow that's uh, you know pushing pushing the story, and, and you know, I 
what I've what I've seen so far is not persuasive. I I think there are aspects of the policy that were worthwhile, and his interaction with Putin was the part that was puzzling to me. And uh, and I think it's more rooted in his own image of himself and his place in history in the election of 2016. And I think he just it warped his thinking about what to say about him, not the what so much to do, but what to say. I mean, there's as far as I can make out, there was nothing positive he did towards. Putin. So that's where we are. On Biden, I mean, you have a lot of career uh, establishment people back in that have dealt with Russia. Uh, I have a lot of experience on it. But when you look at the parameters, uh, and I want to come back to Putin's mindset again, if that's his mindset, you know, if you think you're going to go in and charm him and that somehow we can change the, the rules of the road, uh, I, I think they're going to be frustrated. Uh, I, I, I said very clearly earlier, I think there should be a reset with Russia. I've always felt that. And but it takes two to tango. And Putin has said, I'm not I'm not dancing. So I think the administration understands Russia. But if, I, I think uh, I think just trying to negotiate or say nice things to them isn't going to change the game. There has to be. A, a real deep-rooted understanding. And the only thing Putin seems to, and like his predecessors, understand is strong, strong policies that confront him. And then at a certain point, they find practical solutions to the problem. So I don't expect a big change in the administration and its dynamic with the Russians. Jack, uh, internally, how stable is Russia today? And what's your take on the um, Navalny protests and how Putin is handling those? Well, I think, again, I would give him high credit internally and in how strong he has become politically inside his own country. I mean, it's, it's his, his country. And part of that is because he did bring the country out of a real economic slump. And you can say oil price, whatever, but however you want to get at it in a really terrible period, he helped bring that country uh, back. And I think he uh, restored Russia as a real, you know, as a as a as a, a major country, at least in the mind of his his people. But it wasn't without a cost, and the cost is, you know, an enriching of a new set of oligarchs and and uh, you know the curtailment of political open political freeze of elections and autocratic rule that wears out soon. In other words, when the economics start not to play out so well. All dictatorial, authoritarian governments, let's say that, are vulnerable, you know, have clay feet. And the clay feet is one, it's, once the system starts to go south, they become very vulnerable. And how they handle that is, uh, you know, we look how quick the Soviet Union fell when none of us thought it was that vulnerable. And I want to come back to the power of the Internet and social media and dictators Authoritarian governments, strong people are more vulnerable than they realize. And so I think what you see in Russia today, particularly among the 20 to 35 year old, is dissatisfaction with the, the system um, and its, its performance. And then I think, as I said, they want they want to be part of the West. They want to be part of a world that lives more free and openly. And so I. I I think he has serious troubles. I don't think he's vulnerable. I wouldn't dare predict that he, you know, he's going to disappear from power anytime soon. But it is the type of environment where things unravel quickly. And he needs, I mean, the first temptation will be to shut it down 
But if you fail in shutting it down, you run the risk of uh, stimulating more activity. And if he, if Rodney becomes um, a martyr in the process, and I mean symbolically, um, you know, so I think I think Putin's um, still solidly in power. But for the first time, I think we're looking at some real cracks in the system. And he has to go back and ask himself, do I want to strengthen my authoritarian position or do I want to loosen up? And there's a risk in both of those. Um, in your new book, Spymaster's Prism, you uh, break the chapters down into uh, a series of lessons learned. What are some of your key takeaways? Well, one, now this is not for our audience necessarily, but the Russians are relentless. They, they've, they've been at this game and they've been at the target. There's a, a book written uh, about Comrade Jay. And you remember Comrade Jay was the number two fellow up in New York, uh, KGB. And uh, he worked for us and uh, provided a lot of information, valuable, extremely valuable information. But one of the things he said was, you know, I was in the service, you know, before the, uh, before the government fell, the number one target was the United States. Number two was China. Number three was NATO. And now, you know, when I left, it was U.S., China, NATO. In other words, the objectives have not changed. Let's go back over your question again. It was the lessons learned from the various chapters in Spymaster's Prism. Um, right. You had a number of takeaways um, of some of the key lessons learned um, in your experience with the Russian intelligence over the years. When I look back at some of the other lessons, the second lesson, which I think does apply to our our audience today, and that is it takes a spy to catch a spy. And I remember walking around a building in, uh, in Langley with people wearing buttons after Ames saying, never again, right? <laughs> and the executive director was pushing it and they were having conference, never again. And on the seventh floor and... and Russia House and a few other, but we knew we had a spy. Another spy, was, we were hunting for him, right? So it's like, what are we doing walking around telling people never again? You don't understand the nature of the business, gang. That is, we've always had spies inside our service and inside the right. It's part of the, part of the history of it. So, and I, I think it's a mistake, and I think we had problems finding our spy aims because we couldn't accept the fact that one of us could be such a, you know, a bold trader. There are forms you can fill and polygraphs and financial. We fortunately can now look at financial data about some of our employees to make sure they're not vulnerable. But at the end of the day, when I think of almost every spy that I can think of, they were compromised by another spy. So that in order to have a strong counterintelligence program, you have to have a strong intelligence program of recruiting source. So Amos was rolled up by a, you know, a spy and, Hanson, well, I mean, you know, going back to the Cambridge Five or you go back to uh, the 1950s and the Rosenbergs and all that, all one spy outing another, another spy. So I think we need to have a better appreciation of the existence and the sensitivity about this issue inside. And when we approach it, approach it with that, that in mind. A number of other lessons are, you know, it's really important to work within the, in the lines. The agency, by and large, in my career, uh, spending 30 years in yours, and I believe to today, um, we, you know, it's really important that we have congressional, that we're working within the guidelines of, you know, congressional approval because that's the voice of the country. 
that our policies are vetted, that our covert action. And every time we get in trouble, it's because we want to expedite something. We're in such a big hurry to get it done that we don't touch all, all the bases. So I, and again, I had a dust up in the Iran-Contra, as you know, Iran-Contra affair. And it's one of the few cases where our, our folks really did step step over the line, well-intentioned perhaps, but, you know, so in the world of intelligence, I think it's terribly important to, to stay within within the lines. So, but I go through, you know, a, do, a dozen different uh, perspectives and, you know, again, first one was the Russians never give up. They're pretty good at it. Um, Jack, turning to some of your personal experiences dealing with uh, Russians and Russian intelligence, particularly during the days when you were chief of CIA's Afghan task force. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, especially your experience with uh, U.S. Congressman uh, uh, Charlie Wilson? And really, was it really Charlie Wilson's war? <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that annoyed me, you know, and, and I knew Charlie very well, traveled with Charlie. I knew the author of the book, Charlie Wilson's War. And I remember we went to uh, Spark Steakhouse in New York. For people out in New York, that's where Castellano, the head of the mafia, was gunned down at the front steps. So Charlie had a sense of spy romance. So we were going to go to some place where the mafia dot was shot. So we're sitting there, and I think we had, we did have our wives with us, and he leans across the table and he said, Jack, you know, I, I know you didn't like the book, but you're, you're going to hate the movie. <laughs> and he knew what I meant. And that is, it's uh, it's, a, it's a fun book. It was well-received and, and so on, but it just isn't rooted in truth uh, on the fundamental issue that it was his war. And and it's a and why I'm annoyed is because people have to understand how real major covert action is done. It was a U.S. government program. It was approved by the President of the United States, overseen by Congress, amply funded by Congress. Charlie provided great help for funding, but also one of our Middle Eastern allies, which is in the public record, provided the other half of the funding. It was run by the agency. He had nothing to do with the stinger. He actually went to Zia, that's another long story, and said, oh, tell the Americans you don't want to the stinger. And I think he may have been put up to it by some of our friends because they were afraid it would cause another another war. So he had nothing to do with the stinger, which was fundamental. And now he ran that operation for a couple of years. And in the process, you know, I saw Charlie a lot, but in terms of substance, where we were going to go, how we were going to, what weapons, when, where, how, who. Charlie was never involved. I mean, he was a great face for some of the world. He was a great, uh, very helpful down on the hill, a real patriot. I mean, and he was substantive. People make you know light of some of them, but he was, he was a truly substantive guy, Napolis graduate, and his heart was in the, getting the Russians out. But it wasn't Charlie Wilson's war. But to say the U.S. government did it, and a lot of people did it, and I was fortunate to be one of them, you know, that, that's not a great movie, right? <laughs> that's all of us trucking in and saying, hey, we did it as a gang, and we, we, Congress approved it. It's like, that's a boring movie. But you have a congressman and um, you know, Miss America running around in the middle of Afghanistan. I mean, yeah, that's a movie. <laughs> you know? And there was no real Julie uh, Robertson at either. He had a... He did have a introduced by Texas uh, socialite, but she had never touched the program, was never part of the program. So, you know, I don't want to throw cold water on it other than people need to know when you do serious covert action, 
It's your government doing it. And if, if it's not your government, you don't want any part of it. Jack, you knew personally uh, Aldi James, and you helped in the hunt for Robert Hansen. Do you have any personal insights in either or both of those um, cases? Well, I think one is when you brush up with a real spy and you know them. I, I mean, I went to Rick's wedding. Uh, his father was uh, an intelligence officer and a failed one as well. Um, and Rick would talk about espionage. It was kind of interesting because I knew nothing. I came out of Philadelphia. I, I wasn't sure what CIA did. It would sound like fun. Um, but he was really stupid. His father was assigned to, I think it was Thailand, and uh, he went with him. So he understood the game well and was interesting in that regard. And he was very conservative in his outlook about how you deal with Russians, and he wanted to become a Russian uh, expert. And But I think when you look back at it, there are some flaws, and I think they're the flaws that we see in almost all spies. You don't think they should have a superego when you meet them, but they do. In other words, they really think they're good. And Hanson thought he was really the smartest guy in the block. And I think Rick did too. Um, but uh, no one shared that view. So there's a gap between your self-perception and the way you're perceived by your, your leaders and your colleagues. So what happens then your career starts to go the wrong way. Neither of them had fast track careers. Uh, Rick plotted along in his own way. He was also fundamentally lazy and if you combine laziness and a big ego you're not going to you're going to have trouble in the institution and is under and is under performance so i think most spies turn against you know the internal part of the system that they personally were abused by the system and they were under underappreciated and then you provide the opportunity 95 percent of people at the cia do not sit on you know information to the quality that Hansen and Ames had. So they were in a position to provide information and they had access, in Rick's case, he had natural access to the Russians. So, and then you throw in drinking and in, in Hansen's case, wasn't drinking, but he, he certainly had some unusual lifestyle issues. So uh, both of them uh, suffered from, from that. And the second thing is, the second lesson I take is how hard it was for us to accept the fact that we had someone in the system. We thought, you know, they were firing microwaves at the embassy, and that's how they compromised it. And then there was a technical compromise, and uh, and they, they steered the agency in another direction. Then we had Longtree. Oh, Longtree did it. He brought them into the station, the Marine in, in Moscow. And that wasn't it. Wasn't it. And, uh, you know, they, they ranked possible spies in CIA, and Rick on the general committee, uh, he came in fifth, and the two folks, uh, Gene Vertebrae and Sandy Grimes, both very professional people, had him ranked one. And so, uh, and then the case went dead. And then Gene on her own went back and said, let me take one more shot before I leave, or he would have very well gone until some Russian spy came out. And then they started. They came to me at one point and said, Jack, you know, Rick, you think he could be a spy? And I said, I don't know another person in the agency that I could say yes to, but he is. And the reason it flashed back to a confrontation he and I had in Rome, we had a Bulgarian walk-in. Again, this is in the public record, so don't get nervous out there. This is not a spy case that I'm revealing here. But And uh, I was on the weekend, and Rick, Rick was going to go out and polygraph him on the weekend. 
I ran into Pluger for Monday morning. I said, how did it go? He said, oh, God, we did it like six, seven times. It was horrible. And, it, you know, the, the results were dreadful. Well, what Rick did was deliberately diminish the value of the polygraph by doing it over and screwing it up, right? And so he had enough time to get uh, Russian contact. Tell him, look, you've got a defector here. So the next morning, I mean, that morning when I saw Rick, uh, and again, he was in a different part of the building, pretty big guy, but kind of flew down the, well, flew, I don't fly, but <laughs> I marched down the hall and got about six inches from his face. And I, I don't do this. It's not, uh, we used to have a guy called the purple, I don't, that's purple face men are not my idea of how you run an operation, but that day it was purple face. You know, asking him what he was doing. And what I would have thought if I did it, if I had done it to you, Jim, you would have been back. This is why I did it. There was nothing. Absolutely no reaction whatsoever. And I thought, I just I didn't have a, I didn't have a cogent thought. I said, that is very, very strange. There's no reaction here, none. And so when I think back on it, I thought when they asked me the question, that moment flashback where he was so, that I was, there was just something wrong that in his mind, you know, I know more than you know, sort of. I wish I'd been able to interpret it. But the, so there was that. And then, so we had a hard time, a real hard time doing that. I would hope we're better at it. I stick to my point. We better get another spy because, you know, when we were doing the Matrix on people, you know, one guy's red hair and they short in another place. He's still, you start doing the Matrix, good luck with all the information, unless you get somebody that can really nail it. But Hanson... As you said, I was up on the seventh floor, probably acting at the time. And, um, you know, we had a team of FBI agents in the building hunting for him. And I called up the, 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 the fine folks who were working in my office. And I said, I want to know that I want to see the list. They wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> so you got to love our people. In other words, I, I had a top guy in the service on that particular day. And they said, no, no, we're not going to give you the list. I said, you're going to give me the And I will leave out some of this. Approach. So, uh, expletive, excuse me. So they they went and gave me the list, and I looked at the list, and I said, I don't know. I know a lot of these people. Yeah, they got quirks, but it, it doesn't feel right. And but we kept we kept at it, and the bureau was, you know, we're going to get that guy in your outfit. And it turns out Hanson was in their own institution. And when you go back to lesson, when you go back and look, they had the same kind of things that we had, but the FBI and all of its skill and counterintelligence, they missed their own guy. And uh, the way that was eventually unfolded, it was a, a, Russians, a Russian source of ours, you know, provided the, the, the information, including uh, a voice, the trash bag that he pr uh, produced uh, documents in that has fingerprint on it, and uh, a voice, the KGB, KGB taped his voice. <laughs> so they played it for the FBI seniors as yeah, we know who it is. So my point is, when you look at the people, they're not so conspicuous. Drinking, as you know, they refers to the issue. The the medic said that Rick drank too much, but he wasn't. He could turn it on and off, which is different alcoholic without a difference. Or again, at the end of the day, and he did turn it off and on. But um, that's not a clue. It's a clue that someone has a drinking problem and maybe a contributor. So you, when you go around, it's not as easy to spot. It's more in the mind that I be. I'd be more interested in people that feel that they really excel at their, they're, they're really better than all of us and uh, and are coming up short in their career. To me, that would be more of a telltale sign than, I mean, I think it's important if you're extended financially or more vulnerable, whatever you would extend it isn't, you know, spying. But it's in that 
mindset that I think you find the mind of a spy. Jack, one final question before we end today. In your view, in your view, are we up to the task today to containing uh, aggressive Russian uh, intelligence operations against the U.S.? That's your toughest question of all. We, and I say we because you're never an ex-CIA person in your mind. Um, you know, it's still very much a can-do agency. When you look around the world and the sacrifice that our people undertook in, uh, in fighting terrorism, uh, is an incredible feat of can-doism. I do think because of the two wars, much of the base of the agency shifted to tactical support of almost what I call quasi-military activities. Necessitated by the wars, I'm going to leave discussion of how we got into them and so on. That's for another day. But the empirical point is that we shifted the focus away from Russia. We went from 70% of our GDP supply budget to 10%, right? And the emphasis wasn't there. That's not where you made your bones in your career. So we we glided, not glided, but I mean, I think we've had sources. You've seen that reported from time to time. Uh, we've also had less, so I, I think the resources weren't there. And then the training is different when you're preparing and selecting people for tactical collection as in the same set for what I believe now is we're back to nation state struggles and more classical collection. I'm sure we have great talent in the cyber arena. I'm hoping and I'm, I really believe we do have great technical capabilities. So we have the people. I think we've been off the game in the way that it was front and center in the Cold War. Now we're drifting, we're coming back. And China is different than China in the Cold War, and it's a much more formidable adversary and is now getting in the intelligence game in the way the Russians have for a long time. But they're trailing behind in, in their mindset. You know, are we moving fast enough to reset against these classical targets? And are we bringing to bear the training and are the seniors, when I say that, I really mean journeymen, I don't mean the seventh floor, but I'm talking journeymen. Are the journeymen bringing along the young people in the ways that one has to operate to collect intelligence in the, uh, in the more classical way? And the final thing is really a policy issue. It's not whether we can do it. I'm always amazed how quick the agency can, and it's one of the strengths of it, how quick it can move from one place to another, how you can get from one target set to another. Everybody gets moved, partly because we're smooth and a small, and that transition is much easier. But, you know, how we deal with a nation state determines also how the intelligence lines up with it. And as we were touching earlier, we have some unresolved issues that we don't control, and that is, are the Russians going to continue to run covert action operations and intelligence operations in the United States, and what are we going to do about it? We can't be up to that unless the policy is directed in that direction. As you know, the CIA doesn't make policy, and we, we need that direction. And I, I don't feel that it's not that we can't be, I do think we are making adjustments in uh, the amount of money spent on these hard targets, but, and it's it's not a Republican-Democrat issue. I want to be clear here. It's really whether, you know, one of the great things in the Cold War, I mean, when I went down 
to the hill. Both sides were yelling at me to do more. You know, can we throw more money at you? They weren't so hot on Central America. But that's a different story. That's why you need Congress. If you're not behind them, maybe you don't dabble in Central America. So my point is, I think we're up to it, but I do think there's some big policy issues that have to be ironed out. We have to decide how, how are we going to use CIA? And I say CIA, there's all the intelligence agency, but CIA is the one that's down there with the liaison and in the field. And, and how, how are we going to use them? Are we going to use them? And where are we in cyber? And there needs to be policy meetings, not out in some conference, but there need to be policy discussions with our competitors. But how do you want to do this? Uh, because we have mutual destruction in the, the center of the capitals of the world, the major capitals of the world from nuclear weapons. But I would submit we have mutual destruction in the cyber arena. And, you know, we work hard to try and figure to keep nonproliferation and to have some ground rules. In that. I, I think times come that we need to have serious sub rosa discussions about what are the name, what, what are the rules of the road. And if we can get that straight, CIA has the caliber of people and the facilities to train to, to get it done. And right after World War II, there was a gap where we dissolved CIA. We didn't have CIA, but we dissolved the intelligence. So we, we got in that realm around the 90s when there came the Cold War. What do we need it for? You know, I think we're at another point where how are we, how are we going forward with our, all of our intelligence capabilities and it's still diffused too much for my taste i'm not happy with the reforms the current reforms the past reform i have the reason i wanted to write a book about the founding fathers i thought they actually got it right the founding fathers of this country they actually they did a really good job in the constitution but don't screw around with it too much so uh, i think there's reform in that area but it's uh i think we're up to it there's a policy issue and you know, there's some reforms that need to be taking place to make us, make us leaner and meaner. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation with one of CIA's real uh, clandestine operators. Uh, Jack, I want to thank you for um, appearing with us today and wish you all the best with your new book, Spy Master's Prison. Well, thank you very much. And if anybody likes it, write a nice review. <laughs> if you don't like it, don't bother calling me.